This content may not be suitable for all listeners. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome back to Shockingly Wicked, a true crime podcast where we bring you true crime cases from the headlines to the hometowns. I'm Brianna. I am Brittany, and Bri is finally back. Yes, I am finally back. I had to, for anybody who was paying attention, thank you, first of all, for the people who sent their condolences about my grandmother. I really appreciate that. But also... They were so nice. My, uh... I had to fly back to France after I got back from the UK, like literally three or four days after I got back for the funeral. So my brain is a little foggy, but it's fine. <laughs> That's the joy of working from home. I can sleep whenever I want to. So I'm I'm good. This is our finale episode, so I'm going to try to keep the energy up and not drag it down too much. But again, thank you guys for the condolences. I really appreciate that. So this is part two of our Shenandoah murders episode. We are going to have more of our interview with Catherine Miles available throughout the episode. We'll intersperse things here and there. And we're also going to give our opinions on who we think might have possibly committed this murder. These murders, I guess. Because it was one incident... But it was two people who were murdered, and you know that if you listen to our last episode. So our last episode was a lot of like background information on our victim, Lolly yeah. and Julie, and then we did kind of hint a little bit at the suspect, but we're going to go into a lot more information about that here today. So without further ado, Brittany, take it away. I've brought you a mur- <laughs> Murder. Murder. <laughs> That's my favorite. Okay, so if you listen to part one, you know Julie and Lolly, they got murdered in the Shenandoah Valley. Very tragic. If you didn't listen to part one, you're going to be very confused in this part, so I do recommend going back to listen to part one. I also recommend this. But I wanted to talk a little bit, um, and this part is not going to be... I've listed some things from the book, but the book is so such a good book and there's so much details i really touched like the bare minimum of it because i don't want to take away from what Catherine has wrote and i want you to go read it yeah so just keep that in mind yes we we don't want you to get all of your information about the book from us because then you're not going to buy the book and we wouldn't be supporting the author so it would be pointless So I did want to touch a little bit on the crime rates in National Forest. And Catherine touches a lot about this in the book. But reported crime rates in National Forest, parks, and deserts are lower than they are in cities. Only because they're not as reported as they are in cities. Mm -hmm. And even in some small towns. Um, But Julie and Lolly were two out of eight girls killed in the rural rural Shenandoah Valley over the course of 14 months and in 1996 they were just two of 15 reported homicides in the national parks which is a lot yeah I wonder how many it's been like how many now there are like I know that when they were searching for Gabby Petito for example they found a lot of bodies that weren't her before they found hers they did yeah you didn't know that no, I didn't know that. You're, you're going to have to go look into it then. But yeah, I know that they found like a handful of bodies that before they actually found hers. So I wonder how many. I mean, it might not even be murder for a, murder. all of those, but it might have just been somebody who like, I don't Died. know. F- Killed yeah. themselves. 
yeah, something like that. But um, this is off topic, but you know the lake that's drying up in Nevada. Yeah, like and they mead. keep finding yeah, and they keep finding all these barrels of bodies, and they're like it's yeah. from like mob hits. And I'm I like, mean, it is it is Vegas, so. <laughs> I think that's so interesting because, like, the first two bodies were from like the seventies and eighties. I think mm-hmm. that's yeah, it, interesting. It, it'll be very interesting to see how many more they find as the water the continues to recede. Yeah, honestly. But anyways, so in the same year of nineteen ninety six, thirty people reported being raped and one hundred and fifty eight reported aggravated assault. So, like Ooh. on the on the like, if you're comparing it to a city like New York City, it's obviously way lower. But if you think about it, not everybody reports crimes in cities, mm-hmm. and the national forests and deserts and parks are so large and vast. It's almost mm-hmm. harder to report crimes that happen in there. Yeah, which is why unless- it's also harder to solve crimes that are in the national forks forest parks and deserts which i think is why there were so many complications with this one yeah and then also you mentioned that they were short-staffed on like the rangers up for everybody yeah Yeah. well they were short-staffed and then they were going through like a financial crisis i guess Mm. Mm -hmm. everybody's going through a financial crisis this does (sighs) yeah well the world's on fire so it's it's that meme with the dog who's sitting there. He's like, "This is fine. Yeah. That's uh, that's us <laughs> I'm in on a daily basis." <laughs> that's my favorite. <laughs> okay, so if you remember from the first part, I talked about the group that the same time that Julie and Lolly's bodies were being found, it was a group called the Ands, um, mm-hmm. and how they ran into that bizarre hiker who they took a picture with. Yeah. So Catherine actually goes and meets with two of the people in the group in 2018. Cozy and Mags were their nickname. Um, Mags admitted that she hasn't camped since the time in Shenandoah, and then Cozy said that she's only been back out, but only with her brother or a couple of male friends or with her husband. I know that Catherine also mentions uh, that she hasn't been back really either because of this case, because it yeah. kind of ruined that sense of security. Yeah, but they had asked Catherine if the hiker they had met when they first began their trip had ever been on the suspect list, and Catherine couldn't find any evidence that he had ever been on the list. Mm-hmm. And the Ands said they had spent months trying to get the attention of the FBI once they had realized the timeline of the crime. They had written letters, made phone calls, and even sent in a photo, because remember they got a photo with the guy, and copies yeah. of their journal entries from that day, but they never got an answer or heard back from the authorities. Interesting. What was the most memorable part of this entire process for you? Yeah, you know, there's there's two moments that for me were just so shocking that they became memorable. And since mm-hmm. this is shockingly wicked, this is probably exactly the right place to talk about them. You know, the first was yeah. that <laughs> the women and their campsite weren't actually found until June 1st of 1996. It was a Saturday night. And it was, this is like the busiest time of year for Shenandoah National Park. So you literally have millions of people in the park. And the rangers find these two women, they're bound and gagged, you know, their hands are bound with duct tape behind their backs, they're separated, their throats are slit. And they take this information to the administration of the park. And the park says, yeah, but do we really know they were murdered? You know, couldn't it have been a bear attack? 
you know, couldn't it have been suicide? And so at that point, the administration of the park decides they're not going to let anyone know what happened. And so they wrote an internal memo where they said, do not talk about this. Do not release information about this to the public. Don't release information about it until the media. We're going to hide it until the media figures it out on their own. And that didn't happen until very late in the day that Monday. So for, for the rest of the night Saturday, for all of Sunday, and then for most of Monday on one of the busiest weekends in the park, no one who was there at the park knew that this very sophisticated killer had just committed a double murder, that this person may well be a serial killer, and that this person may well be in the park. And for me as a park goer, that is so terrifying. And and one of the stories I tell mm -hmm. in the book is the story of these five women who were backpacking. And they started to hear like rumors and things from other hikers and and they were understandably freaked out as you know, I certainly would have been. And they mm -hmm. approach rangers and they're like, should we be worried? Like, was there a crime here? And the rangers are like, we can't say anything. Everything's fine. And so in this kind of almost Hollywood movie scene, you've got these women hiking closer and closer and closer to this murder scene, not knowing if there's a murderer waiting for them. And, and they're still very scared and very angry about that today. And I completely understand their position. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because <clears throat> it just sounds like the National Park was more concerned about keeping the park open for everybody rather than the safety of the park goers yeah and i should say too because i think this is really important another young woman had been murdered right outside of the park two months earlier um so this was actually the third murder mm -hmm. in a very rural area and it would go on to become two of eight murders that happened over the course of a year. And I think that's why a lot of forensic profilers and psychological profilers have always believed that this is the work of a serial killer. Yeah, especially because it's also clustered together too, time-wise. Yeah. Well, and then the, the, um, the advanced nature of the crime, mm -hmm. to me, shows that it wasn't... Um, it wasn't the first time. Or, like heat of the moment type thing yeah i wonder if Catherine ever saw a copy of the picture or if I'm they sure if or if they had sent that we, that's something we should have asked um or if they yeah. sent like the photo itself to them i i hope not i hope they kept a copy but it would be interesting to see like what if he if, was like the golden state killer or something also i mean yeah, I mean that's like two totally different uh, countries. Yeah, like, I you mean, know. but but what if it was something like Israel Keys, you know, who did Dude, stuff all wild. over the place? I, yeah, I know. <laughs> I want to cover him eventually. Yeah, we can maybe like a bonus episode or like something yeah. like that. <laughs> He's wild. He really is. So if you guys remember Ken Lolly's ex-fiance. So the FBI went to Ken almost immediately after investigating Derek, Julie's roommate. As one does. <laughs> you know. Ken gave them every detail about his relationship with Lolly, but the FBI wasn't buying it. Which I don't know how you don't buy a relationship details, but yeah. go off besties. I guess because, like, sometimes the spouse or the partner or whoever could say that the relationship was great, or, and then, like... 
it actually wasn't, and they find that out from other people. But yeah, but I think in everybody this instance, yeah, he was cool. He knew where to find the best weed. <laughs> yeah, and and like in this instance, like it seemed like they parted on good terms. So they like, did. They still that, like. Yeah. They yeah, they were friends. So it like it didn't really make sense to me why the police and or why the FBI just didn't believe him in this instance. But I guess because so is well, it's usually the person closest to them who would do it cuz statistically you're less likely to get murdered by a stranger. But still. For the next several weeks following them talking to Ken, they shot photos of him entering and exiting vehicles and stores, so they basically stalked my man right now. Rude. I know, right? That's rude. They took pictures of his friends and labeled them as known associates. <laughs> but it had been clear to Ken that the FBI had been attempting to make a case against him. They asked him to come to Burlington to take a polygraph, and he did, and he passed, which I would never take a polygraph. They're not... You can't use them in court. Yeah, they're not accurate, but people for reliable. some reason, yeah, yeah, they're not reliable because like if you're nervous, it's gonna show it off as if you were like t- lying. So it's like if I, I think ever get it, asked <laughs> to take a polygraph, I would be like, you have to talk to my lawyer, and yeah. my lawyer is gonna tell you no. Yeah, but the thing is too is just like if somebody's being questioned and like accused of murder, I would be surprised if they did pass like i'd be more surprised because it's like yeah they don't have anything to hide but it's still like a very stressful event and time to go through yeah they even asked for dna samples and he gave them he gave that to them but ultimately there was nothing that linked ken to the crime but for whatever reason he remained a top suspect for like a good while because they didn't have any other suspects probably no and they were like scrambling to get this solved Mm -hmm. so let's talk about daryl david rice who they actually prosecuted but they didn't actually well Well, they did but they tried to yeah yeah so daryl david rice was born in baltimore and then he grew up in saverna park in the Anne arundel county and attended saverna park high school according to his father he liked Sorry, I grew up a county over from Anne Arundel, so I'm like, I know exactly where that is. So according to his father, he liked music more than sports and loved playing the bass guitar. And apparently he found himself as a member of several garage bands, not just one, several. (laughs) Relatable. And even even played at parties. You were in a garage band? Technically, yes. (laughs) What did you play? The keyboard? No, I was rhythm guitar and singer. Did you know I- how to play the guitar? I you learned something new. I will send I know, you literally. Two, one or two of the songs that we recorded. Uh, well, we only recorded two, but I'll probably send you the one that is not as awful as the other one. So, the em- Were you guys like a gothic band? No, it was more uh, pop rock. I think, think like early Demi Lovato type stuff. Uh, La La Land? <laughs> that, yeah. So it's more along those lines. His family described him as a hippie. Die-hard Grateful Dead fan and would die for his friends. And I think that is... <laughs> that's a lot of... A very a random. Yeah, that's a very yeah. random assortment of facts. <laughs> <laughs> um, however, he struggled with drug usage, such as marijuana, cocaine, and LSD, and suffered from severe depression as well, like the rest of us. Yeah, yeah my like, bestie. Yeah. In 1988, when Daryl was... 21 his father and mother divorced rice had been charged with several different drug offenses in the ann arundel 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 
Arundel, and I wish it was Arundel. (laughs) Yeah, me too. And Worcester counties in the late 80s and 90s. Because of his struggle with addiction, Daryl had trouble holding down jobs, and in the early 90s, he even entered a rehab program. But during this time, he held down a string of, like, low-paying jobs at restaurants and a few guitar stores. Like, he couldn't keep one, but he had Mm. a string of them. Yeah. He even took classes at the Air... The... At the Anne Arundel Community College, but he never actually enrolled, so I don't know if that meant he just like showed up to class. I think you can take individual classes, like enroll without being like a full time student, but oh. I could be wrong. I, I know that like at community colleges, they sometimes have classes that you can take with, or at least like audit a class, but. Hmm. In 1994, he was hired at MCI System House Incorporated offices in Columbia and was hired to write computer training discs so he went from like zero to 60 mm-hmm. he must have been very smart however one of his supervisors at MCI said she noticed he had two sides of his personality <laughs> don't most people yeah I feel we like have we that like do. public persona and then the one that we like show to everybody else yeah quote at first he was great he really didn't talk to a lot of people and he did great work in quote the the supervisor reported I don't know her name. I don't want to like blast her like that, you know. In 1996, two years after he was hired, he began missing work frequently. It's not funny. It's just the way that it was worded. Um, He told his employer he was seeing a psychiatrist and taking medication. Mm -hmm. Um, The same supervisor said she heard that Rice had made, quote, derogatory comments, end quote, to women in the office, but there had been no formal complaints. So I feel like you should take that with a grain of salt. Yeah. But in 1997, Rice flipped out at work and punched a wall in the men's room, resulting in his termination from MCI. So he just like... "Mm." Rice would later go on to tell investigators that there had been tension at work because he started selling marijuana, but also (laughs) told police that his... um, he thought his co-workers were watching his house, following him after hours, and monitoring what he watched on television. So paranoia. Uh Uh-huh. Quote, maybe I was coming apart around the edges. I would think I was schizophrenic, but there were people behind me manipulating me. End quote. David Rice told investigators. Bessie, that is um, That's... schizophrenia. Yeah. I know because <laughs> I had an uncle who was schizophrenic. Yeah. Like paranoia is one of the one of the main components of it. And then being, thinking that somebody is manipulating you. That's, uh, yeah. Either that or you're just a massive conspiracy theorist. Yeah, that's fair. David Daryl Rice had been the number one suspect of the murders of Julian Lawley because of crimes he had reportedly committed in the Shenandoah in the past. Rice had been caught on camera entering the National Park from from the Front Royal Virginia entrance the evening of May 25th. He was seen exiting the park at the Rockfish Gap the next afternoon. Rice later returned to the park on the same day that the bodies of Julian Lawley were found. Coincidence? Eh. Potentially. It's a very large park. Yeah, there's plenty of other people who were also at the park that day. Like the guy that Ann saw. Okay. That year, he was accused of the Shenandoah murders. Rice had already been in jail for a 1997 case he pled guilty to in 1998. He was arrested for the attempted kidnapping of Yvonne Malbasha, a female cyclist, while on Skyland Drive. Okay, so I didn't include it in my notes, but apparently he, like, yelled at her, and she threw a Coke at him, and I thought that was funny. Yeah, it was, um, it's mentioned in the book, like, that whole incident and describes yeah. how it happened. 
but that that's mentioned in the book, so you can read more details in there. Yeah. Rice had yelled sexual obscenities at the cyclist, grabbed her, and tried to force her into his truck. When Yvonne managed to get away, Rice had proceeded to try and run her over with his truck multiple times. Then, the entire time he had continuously demanded she got into his truck. Unable to abduct Yvonne, he eventually drove away, but he was later found and detained by park rangers. If you want more in- detailed information, please read the book. Yes. He had been convicted of an attempted abduction and given a 135-month sentence, which I thought that was a really weird sentence. But yeah. The prosecutors described Rice as being... Ha- um, I was supposed to say hashtag... <laughs> Hashtag anti-gay. Um, quote, anti-gay, end quote, and quote, sexist, end quote, towards women. I don't know how they got anti-gay from trying to abduct a woman. Yeah. Sexist, maybe. Anti-gay, I don't really see it. That's just me personally. I think the only thing really was that they claimed that they had tape of him saying that he hated gay people. Yeah, I'll get to it. Rice is quoted to have said, quote, women are more vulnerable than men, end quote. That is a argumentable statement because I do kind of believe that, but not in the way that you think. And that he, quote, hates gays, end quote. He told police that Julian Lolly deserved to die because they were, quote, lesbian whores, end quote. I don't know how, and I think it's so funny that when people know someone's a lesbian, like are in a lesbian couple, they're automatically lesbian whores. Yeah. Automatically. That's automatic. <laughs> it's not funny. It's just the only like But also how would he have known that they were in a relationship? Horse. I think he was schizophrenic. I think he had mental issues. I mean, yeah, obviously. But five years after Rice was arrested for the murders, a grand jury indicted Rice for the murders. So I'm gonna read um General Ashcroft's statement that he released in two thousand and two. I touched a little bit on it last episode, but I found like the full statement. And I took some parts of it out, but... Yeah, because otherwise it would be very long. Yeah, but this kind of shows you, like, the time frame of United States during this time. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is the statement. Quote, On June the 1st, 1996, the bodies of Julianne Marie Williams and Laura Lolly S. Winnens were discovered in the mountains of Virginia in the Shenandoah National Park, bound and gagged with their throats cut. This morning, I'm announcing the indictment returned yesterday in the Western District of Virginia against Daryl David Rice for the brutal killings. Daryl David Rice is charged with four counts of capital murder. Why is it four counts? Uh, that's an excellent question. Maybe we'll find out. (laughs) Is charged with four counts of capital murder, two of which alleged that he intentionally selected... Oh, the hate crimes. Okay. Two of which he alleged he intentionally selected his victims because of his hatred of women and homosexuals. Today's murder indictment specifically invokes a federal sentencing enhancement enacted to ensure justice for victims of hate crimes. If convicted of any of the charges in the indictment, Daryl David Rice could face the death penalty. This is what they wanted, by the way, guys. These families have suffered what Americans now know all too well. That's the pain and destruction wrought by hate. Just as the United States will pursue, prosecute, and punish terrorists who attack America out of hatred for what we believe, we will pursue, prosecute, and punish those who attack law-abiding Americans out of hatred for who they are. Hatred is the enemy of justice, regardless of its source. We will not rest until justice is done for Julianne Marie Williams and for Lolly Winnens. The indictment of David Darrell Rice is the result of an investigation that had begun late May 1996 when Miss Williams and Miss Winnens were hiking along a trail in the Shenandoah National Park and were reported missing. Days later, the discovery of their brutally murdered bodies set off a multi-jurisdictional manhunt 
in which the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the National Park Service joined forces to follow up and an estimate of 15,000 leads that they didn't really follow up, but like go off. Yeah, allegedly followed up on. Yeah, and context. As a notice filed this morning with the court explains, in 1998, Daryl David Rice pled guilty and was convicted of, I don't know why they got to say this man's full name every time they say his name, Yeah, um, <laughs> was convicted of an attempted abduction of a female bicyclist, also in the Shenandoah National Park. Evidence presented at the guilty plea and sentencing of Rice established that he accosted the woman, angrily screamed sexual reference towards her, and attempted to force her into his truck. I don't know that's how that's any different than any other man who tries to abduct a woman, but apparently this yeah. makes him this makes him hate gays. Yes. When the victim successfully resisted Rice and took cover behind a tree, Rice attempted to run over her with his vehicle. After his arrest, investigators recovered hand and leg restraints in Rice's truck. As a result of his conviction, Rice is currently serving a 135-month federal sentence. Today's indictment charges that Rice singled out Julianne Marie Williams and Laura Winnens for murder because of their gender or sexual orientation, as outlined in the government's pleading. Rice has stated on several occasions that he enjoys assaulting women because they are, in his words, quote, more vulnerable, end quote, than men. Um, I think this was the first person that he assaulted. I don't think he's assaulted anybody else. Yeah, but also, what kind of hand and leg restraints is he talking about? Probably a rope. Because if it's rope, that, but that can be used for literally anything. Like, I how do you know? Was... Yeah, it was used for that. The government's notice set forth numerous incidents in which Rice acted in a hostile and violent manner towards women solely because they were women. Yeah, like any other man committing a crime yeah. against a woman. <laughs> yeah, uh, like this isn't a new thing. Like, even as this person doesn't commit a crime against a woman, like, just just ask a woman about a negative interaction with a man. She'll give you five. Yeah, yeah she'll give it's you five. very likely she will have one. <laughs> In addition, the government's notice describes evidence of Rice's hatred for homosexuals, including his statement that Julie Williams and Lauren Winnens deserved to die because he believed they were homosexuals. Criminal acts of hate run counter to what's best in America, our belief in equality and freedom. The Department of Justice will aggressively investigate, prosecute, and punish criminal acts of violence and vigilantism motivated by hate and intolerance. <laughs> I can read. I promise. <laughs> Since September the 11th, the Civil Rights Division and cooperation with the FBI and U.S. attorneys and have investigated approximately 350 incidents of violence or threats against Americans perceived to be of Middle Eastern origin. Working with our partners in law enforcement, approximately 65 states and local criminal prosecutions have been initiated against almost 80 individuals. Federal charges have been brought in 10 cases. I don't really know what that has to do with this case, but like, he said it. Yeah, I mean, I guess he's just trying to set a precedent for how they're gonna not tolerate hate crimes, but it's like, how do you know the, this was a hate crime? Well, my like, well, that the whole like that is like how do you know that they were killed just because they were lesbians? Yeah, you won't know that until you figure out who killed them. Hey, exactly. The Department of Justice's Office of Justice Programs is currently funding approximately 18 grants totaling 15.5 million to address the unique issues involved with hate crimes. In addition. Our budget contains a request for $5 million to identify trends in the commission of hate crimes by geographic region and type of crime committed and the number of hate crimes, prosecutions, and convictions obtained. Our message this morning is 
unambiguous and clear. The volatile, poisonous mixture of hatred and violence will not go unchallenged in the American system of justice. By invoking the hate crimes enhancement parts of sentencing enhancements today, today's murders indictments make clear our commitment to seek every prosecutorial advantage and to use every available statute to secure justice for victims like Julianne Marie Williams and Lolly Winnitz. But at this point, America didn't even like gays, so... I don't know whether it's yeah. so hard for this. <laughs> but also, like, the whole, like, mixture of hatred and violence will not go unchallenged in the American system of justice. Today's current climate would tell you otherwise. Like, mm-hmm. there is... Well, I a- think this is to them, too. But it is... I know, but still, it's, it's, it's only gotten worse because, like, just to put it simply, the whole criminal justice system needs, needs a reform. It needs an overhaul. Yeah, that's fair. It just needs to just be looked at because if you go to jail for computer crimes and you get more time than a pedophile, I have questions. Yeah, or if you go to jail for drugs, prison for marijuana, and that's longer than somebody who like committed Murdered sexual assaults. Yeah, yeah, like there, I there's some problems there. Don't even get me started on my conversation. <laughs> <laughs> that was um, Ashcroft's whole spiel to the public. In 2004, investigators were forced to drop the charges against Rice after hair and DNA evidence found at the scene did not match his. They determined at least five hairs found at the crime scene were not Rice's or the woman's. So, they had to release him from prison. Yeah. DNA does not lie. Uh Uh-uh. The U.S. District Court Judge Norman K. Moon said he sympathized with Rice and said it was unlikely he would be prosecuted again in the hiker's death. Deirdre Enright, founder and director of the Innocence Project at the University of Virginia School of Law, spoke on Rice's behalf. Quote, there is male DNA on the gag in Julie's mouth. There are hairs under the duct tape. They were not Daryl Rice. End quote. She even offered an alternative suspect. One of the things I really want readers to think about, too, is I present Daryl Rice and then I present at least one other. I think I present several suspects in the book, but I present another strong suspect, a guy named Mark Avonitz. And one of the things I want really readers to think about is is knowing how sophisticated this crime was and how planned it was, who is more likely to have committed it, you know? And I try to give them a real mm-hmm. profile of both people's personality, kind of what was going on in their lives at the time, so that readers can, again, be investigators themselves, you know, and see who they think did it. Yeah, we had talked about it recently in a, another episode about um, organized and disorganized killers and how the FBI mm-hmm. classifies them. And Daryl Rice definitely sounds like he falls into the disorganized and not somebody who would be able to pull off something as sophisticated as these murders. Richard Mark Edward. OK, so this is this is the second suspect. Catherine goes like way into depth on him. I'm mm-hmm. just going to give you a bare minimum because that book is just very good. OK. And we'll get right to that after a quick word about our sponsors. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because I wanted to see what the hype was all about and it didn't really taste super healthy. It kind of has a mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to taking every morning. With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day off right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. All the things. 
In 2020, AG purchased carbon credits that support projects protecting old growth rainforests. So you're investing in an all-in-one nutritional insurance. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day, and that's it. No need for a million different little pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com emerging. Again, that's athleticgreens.com emerging to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Are you ready to launch your new career in coding? Treehouse has one of the best and most affordable online classrooms for you. At Treehouse, they have rethought the learning process and built a proven system to get you the skill and knowledge you need to achieve your goals. When you're done with a course, you haven't just watched a video. You learned, practiced, and absorbed a concept. Or choose to build a portfolio, create a network, and land your dream job with their bootcamp-style tech degree program. Land a dev job this year. Whatever your goal, they'll get you there. Get 50% off your first month as a Shockingly Wicked podcast listener through our special discount link, teamtreehouse.com slash signup underscore code slash podcorn courses. And if you didn't get that, that's okay. The link will be in our show notes. You don't want to miss out on this awesome deal. Richard Mark Edward Ivonitz was born and raised near Columbia, South Carolina. He was known as Mark growing up and grew up the eldest sibling in his family. He had two younger sisters, Kristen and Jennifer. He graduated from Irmo High School in 1980, and Irmo is where I got one of my dogs. Oh, really? So, mm-hmm. I had to drive and get Apache from Irmo. Well, it was worth it. Apache is adorable. He's the cutest. Mm-hmm. After he graduated, he worked for Jiffy Lube before going on to serve in the United States Navy, where he stayed for the next eight years. He had been married twice. His first wife was named Bonnie Lou Gower. Before divorcing her in 96, he then married Hope Marie Crowley in 99, and then they stayed married until he died. Ivonitz had kidnapped and murdered at least three teenage girls in Spotsylvania County during the 90s. He was also suspected of a 1994 rape and abduction and a 1995 rape in Massapanics. Panics? Panics? I think it's, I think you said it right the first time. I don't know. I've literally never heard of, I've literally never heard of this town. (laughs) Okay. Well, that was in Massapanics, Virginia. As of June 2002, no one had known the beginning of June 2002, like June 1st. No one had known Ivonitz had been the one who raped, abducted, and murdered 16-year-old Sophia Silva on November 9th, 1996. And then the May 1st, they didn't realize that he had done the 1997 May 1st rape, abductions, and murders of 15-year-old Chris and 12-year-old Katie Lisk had all, and then they were also gone unsolved until this point. On June 24, 2002, Ivonix had abducted 15-year-old Kara Robinson from her friend's front yard. Um, he had approached Kara offering her magazines, and I thought that was a very weird way to just, like, approach a child and be like, hey, you want to buy these magazines? Yeah, I guess in, like, 2002, it was more common to have, like, door-to-door salespeople type of things, maybe. Mm-hmm. Like, I... You still occasionally get one, but it's usually just somebody trying to, like, not necessarily, like, sell you something, but trying to get you to, like, vote for a certain candidate or something. Yeah, I've had that happen to me twice. It was a Republican and a Democrat. I was like, how did you get Mm -hmm. my information? Um, 
then okay so he was like being nice and he was like you want these magazines and then like after a second he showed her a handgun and he forced her into a rubbermaid container in the trunk of his car i thought that was weird too i guess rubbermaid must make more than just tupperware i did not know that that's yeah that's what i thought it was like a freaking tupperware container it's, no it's but definitely then, not no, i think they make the big plastic bins yeah, that would that would make sense. So he tied her hands and feet and then told her not to scream. But this badass girl, she was paying attention to everything. She was looking at the car. She was looking at his face. She was feeling like on the way there. She was like looking inside the trunk and the Rubbermaid container. She was like, I'm going to keep notes. So good. good for her. I love Look that for her. Look at her go. Miss Vigilant. I know. Ivanitz took Kara to his apartment where he raped her and tied her to his bed. Kara was hella smart, though. She looked at his mail to figure out his name, looked at the pictures of his wife and noticed she had red hair, and even talked to him, which she later described him as, quote, cordial, end quote. Well, I don't know if I would consider the guy who abducted and raped me cordial, but to each his I own. think she meant, like, the way he was talking to her, but um, he apparently... So, Catherine talks about it in the books, but apparently he had, like, a lot of sex toys. And then if yeah. you, like, and he really focused on, like, vibrators. And mm-hmm. it, in the first, well, I don't know if I even mentioned this, but at their crime scene, there was a vibrator that was specifically placed. It wasn't used, but it was, like, specifically put there. And nobody yeah. could figure out where it came from because it wasn't Julie or Lolly's. So, it just kind of tied. Yeah. So, that's something to, to keep track of. Mm-hmm. So, before letting Kara go to bed, and, like, he, like, raped her this whole night. Like, he would watch a movie, raped her, and then he would use, like, the sex toys on her. Which is disgusting. It's disgusting to rape anybody but some child. Mm -hmm. But before letting Kara go to bed, he made her smoke marijuana with him and then forced her to take a Valium. But when he fell asleep, she actually, like, freed herself by using her teeth. um, Mm -hmm. And then fled the apartment and went straight to the police. And I'm like, okay, this girl. Plus, she's high on volume. That shit knocks yeah. you out. I never had it, but I know, like, it knocks you out. Well, yeah, because it's that's what it's intended to do. <laughs> when he woke up and realized that she had escaped, he was a little pussy bitch, and then he fled <laughs> and ended up in Sarasota, Florida. I mean, like, I would... I would run away, too, but also, I just wouldn't do this in the first place, so... Um, but the police were hot on his trail, and they found him in Sarasota, and they surrounded him... But he was also a little pussy bitch, and he committed suicide by sticking a gun in his mouth and shooting himself. Nobody Shocking. wanted to see that. Yeah. But the DNA evidence from Shenandoah National Park did not exclude him as a suspect, prosecutors admitted. And I think Catherine actually talks in her book that it matched his to, like, 90%. Yeah, because there's, like, 88 markers or something that they try to like match up and i think his matched up to like 87 if i remember right it, i could be completely wrong but it, it is addressed in the book in more detail okay quote richard mark Ivanitz killed people he told his sisters right before he killed himself i killed more people than i remember that's not three end quote um and right said which is the founder of the or the leader of the innocence project she believes the dna Um, Because apparently the DNA is just still sitting there, not been tested since. Um, And she believes the DNA would lead the FBI to the killer, uh, but it still sits in an evidence locker at the FBI lab in Quantico, and it hasn't been tested in 20 years. I feel like that shows... Which is like a big point in the book. Yeah, it just kind of shows that 
they're not really looking to try to implicate anybody except for Daryl Rice, mm-hmm. which is a little sketchy if you ask me. But Yeah. So Daryl's Rice lawyers actually first pointed to Ivanitz almost 20 years ago, like when he first was arrested for it. But mm-hmm. prosecutors at that time called the argument, quote, suspicious, end quote, and claimed that there was not one scintilla of evidence to support it. My guy, he literally abducted people like right near where this happened. Well, they argued he was a pedophile, but he was actually tracking women that was like 23, 17, 20. Yeah. He was tracking women their age. He only, I mean, he was only found to have abducted, raped, and murdered teenagers. Yeah. But just because he did that doesn't, I mean, he is a pedophile, but that his targets were women, not just teenagers or young girls. Yeah. Because, like, he he said he killed more people than he can count, so it's very likely that he might have killed adult women as well. But there but we is, just, there is evidence know. that, and then Catherine talks about it in the book, there's evidence that he was tracking, like, a 23-year-old, a 24-year-old, a 17-year-old. Mm-hmm. He was tracking more women. Like, he was stalking them. Yeah. So I think if he did... He was only found guilty of committing those three murders and mm-hmm. the, those rapes. But I think had he not killed himself, it would have came out that he has killed a lot. Because he is actually... And there's another murder in the book, uh, Alicia Reynolds' showalter. And her parents actually believe that he killed her. Because her murder happened, I think, like a month before Lolly and Julie's happened. Yeah, it was it, it was mentioned in the book that it was right around the same timeline and I'm, gen, in the same general area. I'm going to do an episode on her in the future because her story is like really interesting but um yeah i mean i i would not be surprised because obviously with these other three like it wasn't his first time doing this like eventually yeah, no. like somebody i think teenagers were just easier yeah to get so prosecutors at the time called the argument suspicious and claimed that there was not one scintilla of evidence to support it and that was right before rice's murder charges were dropped so they were wrong However, Tom Williams, uh, Julie's father, does not believe Ivanitz killed his daughter. Quote, I think it's a ruse. They're the FBI, not the kind of people that are just going to try and pin some guilt on somebody that is not guilty. They just aren't, end quote. That's what Tom Williams Mm. said. I would beg to differ, Mr. Williams. There's evidence of them doing that. Um, Enright told the FBI, said, quote, you test the evidence and then you can tell me I'm wrong, end quote. Yeah, girl, you tell them. So, kind of touching back um, to Daryl Rice, how did you feel when you started to realize that um, the police were trying to pin this crime on him, despite the lack of evidence that was actually against him? Yeah, and it was a really gradual process for me, because I did really trust in the Justice Department, and I did really trust in the FBI, and I thought, well, they must have gotten the right person. You know, I think I was really kind of naive in that way, Mm -hmm. Um, and it wasn't until I went down to Virginia and sat with these boxes of court documents. I had a young uh, research assistant. She was a, a second year law student and she went with me and she'd been helping me navigate some of the legal stuff. And at the end of every day when we were together, I would ask her and I would say, well, what percentage chance do you think it is that that Daryl Rice is guilty? You know, and some days we would early on, we'd say mm-hmm. 75% or we'd say 72%, you know, and then we went down and we spent the day with all mm-hmm. of this court evidence. And we began to realize that none of the DNA taken from the crime scene was his. In fact, his DNA had been ruled out time and time again. 
There were no eyewitnesses who could put him at the crime scene. Um, there was no evidence in his vehicle or his house to suggest he had done it. Um, there was nothing. The only thing they had was this one very strange phone call that he made to an LGBTQ plus um, kind of support center in California. And as it had happened, the director of that support center had edited a book that Julie had read the year before. That was literally the only tie they could make between Daryl Rice and the crime scene. And when I realized that, I realized like, you know, I'm not an attorney, but I don't have to be an attorney. I know that this is not a strong case. Like there's no evidence whatsoever that this guy did it. And so so then all of a sudden, I really kind of had to change course. And I had two questions. I had the first question was, so then why does the FBI continue to spend hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars just pursuing this one guy? And then also, if I don't think this guy did it, then who did do it? And so those became two threads of my research. So why do you think the police uh, never wanted to investigate anybody other than Daryl? Yeah, and I should say um, they didn't begin investigating him until July of 1997. So prior to that, for the, um, Mm -hmm. you know, 13 months, basically, between when the two women were murdered and when they did begin to suspect Rice, they did look at a lot of other um, suspects, including some of the rangers who were Mm -hmm. working on the crime scene. Um, So there were, at that point, dozens or kind of even hundreds of other suspects, but by July of 1997, the FBI and the Park Service had ruled them all out. Um, I can't obviously say mm-hmm. for certain if all of those people are innocent or guilty, you know. Um, but so Rice shows up in the park in July of 1997 and he harasses um, a woman who's a cyclist. And at that point, the Rangers were like, oh my gosh, it must be that the murderer is back and he's targeting women again. Um, Certainly, I think it's unfortunate for Rice, obviously, that he made that very terrible choice to harass and assault a woman. And I don't excuse that kind of behavior by any stretch of the imagination. It is true that when the Rangers apprehended him for that, um, one of the first questions he asked was, you know, did you ever find the guy who killed those two girls? That's unfortunate for him, you know, that he showed that interest in the crime. And this this weird phone call that he makes which his defense team explains away as he basically was trying to call the grateful dead hotline and he called the wrong number you know um it's a terrible Mm -hmm. coincidence if that's true that the number he happened to call was the number of the director of an organization that had edited a book that julie had read um but i Mm -hmm. i don't know and, and maybe your listeners will tell me if i'm wrong I don't know that that's not that that's enough to take somebody to trial for a double murder. Yeah, especially when it's a federal hate crime, too. Yeah. Like, like it's if anything, it seems like a big stretch because, like you said, it's somebody who edited a book. It's not somebody who, like, wrote a book or somebody that the person was like in a relate like in a friendship with or some sort of like stronger connection it just definitely seems like a leap to try and i guess close a case yeah i don't know if i would necessarily say for sure that it was ivonitz or whatever but i think if you like look at it from an outside perspective that 
there was no evidence pointing to Daryl David Rice. I don't know mm-hmm. why I just said his full name to Daryl Rice being <laughs> at his full name. being at the crime scene. But there's a likely other suspect where they can't necessarily rule them out. Like I don't know. Just I get why he doesn't think that the FBI would do that because there's a lot of people who have like complete faith in the FBI and they think that they're all great people, but like they're human humans make mistakes and we have bias and we sometimes it's shown to close a case yeah they want to close a case and it's shown in some cases like the whole the whole idea behind the innocence project is getting people who were wrongly convicted out of prison and they're Mm -hmm. all there's unfortunately a lot of those people so i mean daryl don't get me wrong daryl david rice is trash like he's because he did try to abduct that woman no but I don't think he committed this murder. Me neither. These and uh, I don't think he's a good person either. But like, we shouldn't try to frame somebody for just because a crime they're not they a good person. Yeah. yeah, because that means there's somebody else who committed that crime still walking free, able to commit that crime against other people. Yeah, and then also just the fact that like he's also very likely mentally ill. Yeah, and so like, he needs help. Yeah, he needs help. And the drug and, like, usage doesn't help. Yeah, absolutely. That definitely exacerbates. Um, so the FBI actually released a statement last year, um, last June. I'm going to read it. Oh, okay. Quote, 25 years ago, two young female hikers decided to do what many people do, exercise, relaxation, and sport. Hike through the Shenandoah National Park. However, their journey ended when they were murdered at the back country campsite near Skyland Resort in Virginia. The bodies of 24-year-old Julianne Julie Williams and 26-year-old Laura Lolly Winnens were found by park rangers on June 1st, 1996, after Lolly's dog Taj was located wandering the path and turned over to rangers. The initial investigative, media, and community responses to these murders were enormous and generated leads that would have investigators interview individuals all across the country. To this day, this investigation continues to grip the consciousness of Julian Lolly's family and friends and those who have worked diligently to identify and bring justice to the persons responsible for the census crime. Five years ago today, the FBI Richmond Division distributed a press release imploring the public for assistance in sharing an FBI seeking information poster. We are again asking for the public's assistance. The beauty of Virginia's parks and trails are enticing to people, not just for Virginia, but other states. And during these outdoor adventures, people come across other hikers and visitors, some who make a memorable impression. Over the past 25 years, we are cognizant that those who are hiking in the park at the time of the murders were visiting local establishments and even resided in the areas that may not be local to Virginia any longer. Therefore, it is crucial that this case continues to be shared throughout the country. It is possible that there are people anywhere from Virginia to the West Coast that can have information valuable to investigators. The FBI has updated the Seeking Information posters with additional photos of Julia Lolly. The investigation into the murder continues to be a joint effort by the FBI Richmond Field Office, the National Park Service, and the Virginia State Police. No bit of information is insignificant, and your tip could be the piece of evidence that brings closure to this 25-year-old case. If you have information to share, please contact your local FBI office, FBI Richmond, at... 804-261-1044 or send your tips to tips.fbi.gov i wonder if they have test your evidence yeah test your evidence but (laughs) like that's that's one that's one thing that you could do but also like the ands sending that picture with the dude like i still think that's who did it yeah i 
I would be surprised if it wasn't. I don't know. It could be Vonnets, but I think that's too easy of an ex- uh Yeah. Because, of course, the DNA doesn't rule him out, but it also doesn't implicate him either. So No, and he's also dead. Yeah. So I think until they test the evidence against his again and like get some sort of confirmation it's possible that it could be somebody else because like there are people who can match on a lot of on a lot of dna pieces like a family but not member. yeah but not actually like be the one who did the thing like yeah, yeah he did kill and do He's terrible things to other people so it's very it's very possible that he could be the one who did it, but there's no real way to say until the FBI tests the freaking evidence. Which I get why they don't want to, because if they don't get the every time they test it, they're taking pieces and pieces away until they're not able to test it anymore. So I get why they want to hold off, but like at the same time, ev- like yeah. testing has advanced so much more than the last time you tested it. Yeah, and there are just so many other options too. Like Catherine, uh, we asked her about the twenty three and Me, and mm-hmm. like with the, I think it was the Golden State Killer was the one that they found using that mm-hmm. sort of t- technology. It was. You mentioned the twenty three and Me thing earlier towards the beginning of the interview. Do you feel as though that could be some sort of solution to running the DNA that was found at the scene? What are your thoughts on using DNA databases, basically, for this sort of investigation? Yeah, yeah. Um, And that's really important. And I think there's a couple of different angles here. You know, first of all, as I outline in the book, and the science gets a little complicated, um, Avonitz's DNA was run against DNA that was taken from the murder scene. And his DNA cannot be ruled out because it was so similar. Um, you know, they looked at it in 800 different places, you know, 800 different spots on the DNA chain. And in 799 places, his DNA matches. And and the policy of the FBI lab is if DNA matches in 798 places, you cannot rule out the person because that could be lab error, that could be contamination, it could be because sometimes our own DNA like misfires a protein. So it's possible that your DNA doesn't match in all 799 places. And so at that point, based on FBI policy, the FBI should have rerun his DNA against the sample to see. And they never did. And so first and foremost, that is a ridiculously easy and inexpensive thing that the FBI could do. And it may well show that Ivanitz didn't do it. And it may well show that I'm wrong. And I I don't have any pride in this. Like, I don't I don't need to be right. You know, I just need to know who did it. So that that's number one. The other thing is that since this crime occurred, you know, things have gotten a lot more sophisticated. And there's some really useful tools, something called MVAC right now, which is really helpful. And it's like a super high-test wet vacuum that can find all kinds of cells, and DNA off of evidence that we couldn't find 10 years ago. As far as we can tell, um, this evidence has never been MVAC'd. So that would be another really easy thing to do because probably there's a lot more DNA that's on the evidence that we don't even know about. And then regarding the genetic Mm -hmm. testing in the 23andMe, you know, that's really interesting. And I've written about that for other articles. You know, C.C. Moore is is the founder of of really that kind of research. She works for a company called Parabon Nano. 
and you know she is also very kind of um circumspect about just how effective that is because first of all for that to even work you need to have a suspect in mind right um and that person needs or someone related to them needs to have loaded the dna so there's an ethical question that constitutional law scholars raise which is like okay if i kate decide that I'm going to take my DNA and I'm going to send it to Ancestry.com or 23andMe, um, do I then, do my ancestors, do my descendants, do my cousins, do my nephews, like, do they have a right to privacy just because I've submitted my DNA, you know? Um, for instance, if you look at the BTK killer, um, he was eventually mm -hmm. found because the investigators went in and they grabbed the pap smear from his daughter. And we can be glad that the serial killer has been arrested and put in prison, but did his daughter have the right to privacy? Did she, should she have been able to say yes or no, you can't take my DNA from my pap smear, which is such an you know, intimate medical procedure anyway. And now, now law enforcement officers have her cervical cells to do what with. So, so yes, it's really great when we are able to arrest and put criminals behind bars. And I don't think anybody thinks that's a bad idea, but what else is happening here that might be potentially invasive for other people involved? And I think that's the legal and the ethical question that we haven't really asked yet. Yeah. There's a bunch of like ethical things to consider for that, but I think when you send your DNA to a private company, the company is able to do whatever they want with it. Like I your mean, information when you sign up on Facebook. Yeah. Like it, that's why you read the terms and conditions, my guys. Like I fully acknowledge I'm probably giving away my information every single time that I skim through those and, or don't even like read them and hit accept. But it's the people who do that and then are shocked and appalled when, <laughs> when something happens like that. It's like yeah, oh, with the Golden you... State Killer, he was like, "Yeah, oh, you took like, my family's DNA." Yeah, and like, of course, I guess you could talk about how that person in particular didn't give their consent. But, but technically, like, they did when they accept the terms and conditions. Well, I'm talking about like if it was a family member who did the bad thing, and a different family member was the one who submitted it. And yeah, it but was if that they submitted their DNA to the like, for example, 23andMe, and it's in the terms and conditions that this could be used, but you chose not to read it. That's not your. That's not my fault. You didn't choose to give. Like you chose to give consent. You just didn't read it. No, I'm talking about like the family member. Uh is related to the person who committed the crime, which is I think is what happened with, with the Golden State Killer. And, like, the, technically the killer didn't consent, but, like, maybe you shouldn't have murdered somebody. Like, I don't yeah, feel bad Yeah, we don't really care you. what you consent to. <laughs> you yeah, like, murdered. <laughs> yeah, like, you committed a crime. I don't necessarily feel bad for you for getting caught for committing said crime. Like, mm -mm. sorry. So... not uh buddy. Yeah, like, sure, there are ethical things to consider, but, like, if it What's helps more ethical, to... Your privacy or solving a murder. Yeah. They're, like... And if you don't, don't want know. your stuff to be used, don't send it in. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I definitely think that that should be or an option that they consider using. I think, though, 
And I'll have to like double check. I think since they did the Golden State Killer thing, it's gotten a lot harder to be able to use it and it hold up in court. Yeah. Well, because I think so that, many ethical arguments came up with that. I think there's a database specifically because um, there's a group on Facebook that we are a part of where they talk about like various things. And I saw some people posting about a DNA like database, I think specifically for that reason. Like if you have done like 23andMe and stuff, you can download like the raw data and then submit it to this other database that can help like solve crimes. So there's also that that option as well and if i am able to find that information i can like add it to our show notes but yeah like i would think that people would want to help solve crimes like i don't know i guess for me i don't mind giving up that quote-unquote privacy if it puts away somebody who's bad you know, is that really your like, privacy, though? Like, if you already send it in? Because technically yeah. you're letting them, like, go through your DNA to, like, see who you're related to. So, like, yeah. are you really giving it up if you've already yeah. sent it in? You're right. Like I said, if you don't want to send it in, if you don't want your, da- your data, if you don't want your DNA used, don't send it in. Yeah. Just yeah. don't know who like, you're related to. Yeah, and that that's the thing is, like, you are the one who is doing this like you nobody is taking this from you without your consent like read the terms and conditions and if you're not going to then you can't complain <laughs> like it's just it's as simple as that you don't hear me complaining you see i haven't said anything in because i don't want to know if my family members are murdered i think my sister and my dad have done the ancestry.com one i haven't sent mine in but well, I I intend to. It's I mean, yeah, but there's. It's funny because you're able to find different percentages of like certain aspects compared to like siblings. Like you might oh. get different like distribution of certain genetic material. So mm-hmm. like I could potentially be more black than my sister is, <laughs> and that would be really funny it. to rub in her face. I feel like, like you said, technology has advanced to the point where. I feel like now would be a better time to test the evidence and potentially solve bad, this case. It? I it depends I guess on if how it's, it's bad. Yeah, like if it's kept properly, it shouldn't go bad. And especially like with blood because it's usually it can be like dry and it should be fine. But I think for like hair and and things like that, like hair will I, dissolve yeah. eventually. Yeah, so I don't know. It's I feel like this this was frustrating to me as I was reading the book too because I was just like, why are they just kind of sitting on this? Because but I mean, I do understand that there is a backlog. Yeah, but they claim to want to solve this case in like this press release, and they keep bringing it to the national attention and keeping it on the forefront. So it's like. I don't know. It just seems like they're saying one thing and then doing another. Because from from everything that their actions are showing to me, it seems like they're still trying to find a way to pin it on Daryl Rice. And based off of the information that we know about him, he does not seem to be the type who would have the wherewithal to pull off a crime like this and get away with it. Yeah, like, that's what Enright said too. 
She was yeah, like, cause... he cannot. He's messy. <laughs> yeah, I re- yeah he, she was like, he's a mess. And like, I, she's not wrong. Because like, something would have gotten left behind. But it's been 20-something years. If he did do it, years. he would have been qu- caught very quickly. Yeah. And then you have this case that hasn't been solved in however long. Person brought duct tape. Like, he must have followed them. And a vibrator. Because... Yeah, and a, he brought a vibrator. He must have followed them to the scene because, like, there's no way that somebody who was just walking past would have been able to see where they were do- going or where yeah. they were staying. So, like, this all seemed very planned, and Daryl Rice is not the type who would plan something like this. No. But the FBI thinks differently, I guess. I also yeah. They also think this is a hate crime, and don't get me wrong – if they were murdered because they were gay, it would be a hate crime. But we don't know that that's why they were murdered. Yeah. Um, it could have just been like, a crime of opportunity. Yeah. And like I think we said in the last episode, we don't know specifically that they went after Julie and Lolly because they were they gay. They could have just, just them. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just like they picked them as their victim but it wasn't necessarily but for was a it, specific reason yeah i was about to say but was it because of their looks was it because they were two females was it because they were gay was that because they were easy targets there's so many factors that determine in the crime yeah and until you find out who it was that committed the crime and hear it from them you can't say definitively if this was a hate crime and speaking of backlogs i just want to take a moment to bring up my favorite charity um it is called the joyful heart foundation and it is ran by Mariska Haggerty, the actress who plays olivia benson on svu and it is a um foundation to end the rape kit backlog yes so definitely go check that out as well we will link it the- in the show notes yes so really i we hate unsolved cases but this one it's it it's feels like we're very close, I feel like, to an answer as long as they decide to actually test the DNA. I've I've been seeing lately that they have been doing that with a lot of like unsolved cases from back in like the 80s and stuff lately, and they've been able to find answers. They've been able to figure out who it was that committed these murders. So maybe someday soon they will also be able to say definitively who did this and close the case and get some and when that happens we justice will release an episode hopefully <laughs> hopefully it will happen sometime within our lifetime so did you keep in contact with anyone you met during your, the process of your investigation yeah i mean over the course of this i formed you know some really meaningful relationships to me and when i decided this was going to become a book the first thing i did was i reached out to lolly and julie's friends and family because i wanted to make sure that me doing this was going to be okay with them especially julie's parents you know i just the last thing i ever wanted to do was cause more pain for people and i definitely also didn't want to do anything that would make it harder for the fbi to eventually get a conviction so it was really important to me that I knew that I wasn't going to be interfering with an open case and that I wasn't going to be, I think, um, maybe disrespecting Julie's legacy and her family. So that was the very first thing I did. Um, and they agreed to work with me um, and were fantastic. You know, I spent one weekend with her mom and dad, like looking at all their old photo albums of like Julie growing up and things like that. And I talked to a lot of her friends and I talked to a lot of Lolly's friends and 
by then, because I had worked at Unity College for 15 years, I already knew a lot of her friends. You know, they'd become my friends and her professors were my colleagues. And and so some of those relationships already existed, but but certainly all of the relationships continue. Um, and I felt really fortunate, I think, that that these people who were so close to these women were willing to share stories with me about who they were and and help me really write a story so that readers felt like they could get to know Lolly and Julie too. So what um, do or did you hope to accomplish by writing and publishing Trilled? Yeah, a couple of different things. I mean, first, you know, having really admired Lolly and Julie for so long um, and having gotten to know so many people who were just really deeply impacted by this crime, you know, first and foremost, I really want this case to be solved, you know, and as I outline in the book, mm-hmm. there are a few really easy things the FBI could do to rule in or rule out some of these other suspects, and they haven't done it. So I would love to see mm-hmm. you know, some pressure on the FBI so that they feel like they should be doing a lot more in this case. But, you know, the other thing that I'm really aware of is this case is just one of 250,000 cold cases in America, cold murder cases. And for each one of those 250,000 cases, there are friends and family who have never gotten any kind of closure. They don't know who did it. That person still may be out there. And I really wanted to call attention to the fact that while Lolly and Julie's case is unique and theirs is a really important case, it's not the only case. And, And I wanted people to understand what went wrong in the investigation of this case and the ways in which this case can be still solved because because it, it is one of this quarter million sets of cases, which doesn't even include the number of rape cases where rape kits have never even been tested by authorities and DNA has never even been tested. And and those are those are thou- hundreds of thousands of women who have never had any sense of justice and who still live wondering if their perpetrator is out there. and. For me, you know, as a woman, as a feminist, that makes me so incredibly angry. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. The backlog is insane. Is there anything that we or our listeners can um, do to help with closing this case um, (laughs) and getting justice for Julie and Lolly? Thank you so much for asking that question. I mean, first of all, I would really love to hear from your listeners if they think I got it right, you know, I mean, because I may not have. Um, But certainly I think, yeah, I think we can all be putting pressure on our lawmakers, on law enforcement to make sure that this backlog gets resolved. Um, And we can all be making sure, too, I think that the wilderness is a safe space. You know, too many people who are black, brown, you know, women, queer, like transgender, you know, non-binary, like differently sized people don't feel safe in the wilderness because of these crimes. And and we can demand better funding for our national park services and our wilderness areas. We can support organizations that um, create safe spaces so that everybody can be in the wilderness and everybody gets to enjoy what's so great out there. Yeah, absolutely. So where can our listeners buy a copy of your book? <laughs> just about anywhere right now. I love independent bookstores. And so I would say if you have a bookstore near you, one of the great things you can do to help them out is to buy it from them. But of course, it's also available in places like Barnes and Noble and um, Amazon. And I'll just say too, 
that the same actress who read Michelle McNamara's All Be Gone in the Dark also read my audiobook for the audiobook version of it. Oh. And she did such an amazing job. She makes me sound so much better than I am. And I, <laughs> I mean, I wrote the book and I listened to her read it and I get scared. So that's another really great option too, if you like to listen to things. Before we hop off, is there like social media, website, anything that you want to like promote uh, where people can find you online? Yeah, sure. So my author page is um, Catherine Miles, K-A-T-H-R-Y-N Miles.net. And I'm also on Twitter and Instagram and love to hang out with folks there too. So, um, and I've been trying to keep folks posted on in terms of like, um, you know, talks and book things I've been doing. And also as like new, you know, I can I'm continuing to investigate this case with the Innocence Project. And we're also looking at some other murders that we think that Ivanitz did. But that is what we have for you. Obviously, we didn't include every piece of the interview. But if you are on Patreon, you will get to watch the whole interview unedited so you're gonna hear our mess ups which happen a lot because of lag <laughs> really just thank you to Catherine miles first of all for writing this book and bringing it to our attention and also for letting us interview her for all of the work that she put into research and everything over the last couple of years and hopefully you guys learned something too so Thank you guys so much for listening to our season two finale episode. See you in August. <laughs> you can find us on social media. We're not completely disappearing from there. We are on Instagram at Shockingly Wicked Podcast. We are on Twitter at Wicked Podcast One. We are on TikTok at Shockingly Wicked. We are also on YouTube and Facebook at Shockingly Wicked Podcast. And on Patreon at Shockingly Wicked Podcast as well. Our website is shockinglywicked.com or shockinglywickedpodcast.com. It'll take you to the same place. And every single link for every other place you can find us are on there. Go ahead and check it out. You can also find our uh, case notes and all of our sources there if they don't happen to fit in the description of the episode on whatever listening platform you're on. So if you have case suggestions, we have our list going. We are planning for next season. So go ahead and send those in to shockinglywickedpodcast at gmail.com or use the contact form on our website. We are thinking of putting together some sort of newsletter. Um, you'll be able to sign up through our website and we will send out like reminders every time we drop an episode and just maybe some updates on cases that we've covered, just various things like that. Or if we're doing an event and you want to know that information, obviously the people on Patreon will be able to get that information first, but... You know, if you don't want to miss out, just keep checking back on the website and see when we get that sign up for our newsletter going. But I believe that is everything. Thank you again so much for listening, guys. We really appreciate it. We will see you next season. Bye. Bye.